favorite authors, friends, and guests explore the simpler side of life. Here's your host, Amish fiction author, Tracy Fertikowski. there. Welcome to another episode of Buggy Talk. I'm your host, Tracy Fredikowski. Each week, I'll bring you the story behind the stories along with the storytellers. For this week's episode, we have award-winning author Suzanne Woods-Fisher with us, who will introduce us to her latest release, Anything But Plain. Good morning, Suzanne. How are you today? Hi, Tracy. Thank you. I'm very good. It's a beautiful day out here in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I'm so happy to share this day with you. Oh, well, I am certainly pleased and honored that you chose to be on the Buggy Talk podcast today. And thank you for getting up so early to be with me this morning. We are quite a few hours difference between South Carolina and California, so we appreciate that. And before we get to talk about anything but plain, those of you who listen to the Buggy Talk podcast know that I love to ask our authors some personal questions about their career and how they came to write Amish fiction. So, Suzanne, do you mind if I ask you some questions about your career? No, please do. All righty. Well, the first question I have for you is, what is the most difficult part of your artistic process when it comes to writing? Well, probably, uh, well, we kind of talk about this later, I think, through some of your questions about just what it's like to have a book published and getting it out there and all that. So I don't know if this is answering your question. The artistic side is actually, it's just such a joy. I I don't know if there is something difficult for me other than making sure the story is really well-crafted and clean and polished and ready to get into the editor to the best of my ability. I think sometimes when I look at just the challenge of writing, if I can flip that a little bit, you and I were talking offline about marketing, and I think that is a whole other part of the book world where you are putting aside the artistic process and you are really having to wear a different, whole different set of skills, and you're marketing your book and you're self-promoting and you're getting it out there. And Tracy, I think that's about 50% of the job. I don't know if you felt that way. Oh, absolutely. I, you know, I often tell aspiring authors who I talk to, You know, they say, how do you write a book? I said, you have to understand that learning the craft of writing a book is only a really small part of being a successful author. More comes into your relationships with your readers, getting the word out about the stories that you've written. That's almost sometimes harder than it is to sit down and write write a book. Yeah, I think most people sort of glamorize the life of an author, and it just makes me smile because I type in a laundry room with two big dogs around me, and and then it's, it's hard, hard work, and it requires a lot of time and silence, and you say no to many things to get to meet that deadline, and then comes the, the marketing and the, you know, the promotion and all that, so it really is a more complex full-time job. Sometimes I think it it is, you know, you might you might get that book advance and the royalties come in, but if you really count all the hours, you probably are making a diamond, a diamond <laughs> hour, I'm sure. So, Suzanne, tell us a little bit about yourself. What is something your readers wouldn't necessarily know about you? Well, there's a, you know, there's some private things like I'm a very enthusiastic tennis player. I play three times a week at least. I love it. It feels like 
you're out on the court and you're kind of 10 years old again. And it, I find I often will get up really early and then I will play maybe. So I'm, I'm actually up often sometimes even by 4.30 or 5 to try to hit my word count. And then at 10, I'll have a, a tennis match. And it's just such a good antidote to sitting at a computer and being too in your head. And you get out on that court and it's just so fun. So that's like one lighthearted part of my life that it just keeps a good balance and rhythm because we need to move and computer work is not geared toward helping your body stay strong and healthy it it really you know you have to almost counteract it but maybe something else your readers and your listeners might not know is that my grandfather was raised plain and this is why I write about the old order Amish I have a, a genuine connection to these people we've had some of our relatives live in our home during periods of time. And I just have such an appreciation for the plain people in a way that they're not perfect. I'm not trying to spin them as perfect. I'm not trying to convince anyone to go Amish at all in my books. But I do think there's a lot to learn from them and a lot that they are doing right, especially when it comes to community. Boy, do they do that well. And especially when it comes to family and then the priority of faith in their life. So that's kind of my heart of writing about Amish fiction. And I'm sure you've learned many lessons by having relatives in, in the Plain community. Definitely. I think probably if there's one thing more than anything, it's their emphasis on forgiveness. It just, it's profound and it's real. And as if you have a faith, there's no way you can't realize that that is central to our faith, that we are really meant to be forgiving people, even in small things and big things. And it's the hardest thing in the world. It's so hard. But what an example they have for us. They certainly do. And don't you think that that's why our readers are drawn to Amish fiction? It could be. There's probably some other aspects as well. For example, when a cover is designed, I know with my publishing house, which is Ravel Books, they really want that cover to immediately let the reader know that she's crossing into another world. So it will often be a very natural sort of rural or, um, you know, just something that makes you even a fence sometimes that there, there really is a time when you are putting away your, your busy high tech life and you are moving into a quiet, peaceful place where nature is central where their life just slows down. So I think there's some of that as well. But as far as past the bonnets and buggies and beards, which is what I love to write about, I agree with you that I think people are seeking, so needing healing. And I do believe forgiveness promotes healing. It's just so startlingly counterintuitive to our natural self. And yet it it just brings such gifts. Oh, that was beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And I want to go just snuggle up with a book right now. (laughs) Thank you. So, Suzanne, tell us what your favorite part and your least favorite part of the publishing journey is. Well, we talked about this a little bit with the marketing. I think probably the marketing side of it requires me to put away the creative side in the sense that, for example, in a, a week or two, I'm going to be going back east. And I'm doing some library events, which I love. It's so good. I love libraries. Really want to help promote them in any way I can because I think they're just the heart of a community, especially in these smaller towns. And 
yet it also means I won't be writing for a week. And I think that's one of the hardest things is like I'm balancing the two where I need to get away from the computer, go to these places, meet readers, do research. I'm going to be in Western Tennessee doing some research in sorts and tuber homes, which is going to be sort of fascinating, I think. And so I, I think it's like that, that balance of carving out enough time to write a really good story, but also setting aside the time needed to kind of fill my mind with the reality of what this book gig is all about, which is the readers. You know, when you come right down to it, it's the readers. It certainly is. I am dying to find out what book is currently on your bedside table. Well, this surprised you. I actually tend to read nonfiction. I don't read a lot of fiction unless it's for a book club. I don't know why. I just find, maybe because it's too hard to not read it as an editor. I, I just feel like I'm critiquing it all the time. There is a book I'm reading right now, and it's nonfiction called Subtract by Lydie Klotz, K-L-O-T-Z. And it's it's a little bit heavy. It does bog down at times in kind of a textbook way. But the basic principle is not minimalism. It's not simple living. It's the idea that there is strength in less. Let me give you an example. Corrugated cardboard is stronger because of the spaces in between. A concrete brick is actually, it used to be solid, and then someone figured out that it was the four corners that held it together, and so now there's space inside a concrete brick, like a foundation brick, that actually helps make it fireproof and all that. So the idea that there's strength in less, fascinating to me, because we tend to just add and add and add, and the idea of really being discerning about your time and where you're putting your energies and to work off your strengths and allow creative space like that. I think of corrugated cardboard and I think that space, that emptiness is what gives me time and room for my mind to come up with stories or think well or, you know, that whole artistic process that we talked about. So that's the book I'm reading. I, I recommend it, though, I, you know, with a warning that it is a little bit of a, of a textbook. Oh, that sounds really interesting. I am a minimalistic person at heart. You know, I don't like clutter. I come from a very simple background. My home is is very sparsely decorated. You know, I am, other than my office, you know, my office tends to be over the top with stuff for some reason. But this sounds like a book right up my alley. And I wrote down the name and the author, and thank you for sharing that with us. So many of our listeners really like to hear from the author's point of view, realistically, how long does it take you to write a book? It truly takes a deadline. It is amazing what can happen with a deadline looming because it really brings everything into focus and makes that happen. Now, I would say I've been feel very fortunate. I've had this long relationship with Ravel Books, same editor through all the books. I'm, I'm in my, I think it's on the upper 30s now of, of books, all the whole time, same editors and incredible publishing house. I just love these people so much. They work so hard to help your book be the best it can be and to get at the attention that it needs to get. And, you know, they work with an, an author so well and finding, just making sure the cover is right and that kind of thing. It's a really wonderful company. And so um, 
I feel as if I, because I have many con multiple contracts with them, I just also, you know, that's one of the things I've got contract and a contract and a contract. So I've got to really discipline my life so that I'm meeting those deadlines. And, and then also I just have such a high appreciation for these people. I, I want to really deliver on time. So I've never been late and I try to turn in a really clean manuscript, but I do love their revisions and their editing process and all that. But, but I would say right now I'm doing about every six months I have a book going in. I have done a tighter time frame. And the thing that I have learned is that as much time as you have, you will take. Oh, that is perfect. <laughs> Sometimes I work well under pressure. So mm -hmm. if I have in my in my head a date that I want something to get done, then I will strive to get that done. So you're you're exactly right that, you know, uh, deadlines are definitely a way to get a book done fast. Well, Suzanne, thank you so much for sharing a little bit about your personal life and your writing career. So now is the time in our in our interview where we get to talk about anything but plain. But first, I'm going to go ahead and read your back matter to set the stage of this particular story, and then we will dig into the story itself, okay? Sounds good. All right. This is Suzanne Woods Fisher, Anything But Plain. It's not easy being the bishop's daughter, especially for Liddy Stolfus. She's not like other Amish girls as much as she wishes she were. The only thing she does well is disappoint others. Leaving her family and church seems unbearable, but staying might be worse. Knowing Lydia is between jobs, the local doctor asks her to fill in at the front desk for a few months. To Liddy, this is a boon. It gives her time to figure out how she's going to say goodbye to her neighbor, Nathan Yoder, the main reason she needs to leave Stony Ridge. Nathan claims he's in love with her, but she knows she's not good enough for him, if in doubt, Nathan's father reminds her frequently. As Doc spends time with Liddy, she recognizes symptoms of a disorder rare among the Amish. She offers treatment for Liddy. But will it be enough to make her stay, or has help come too late? Well, that sounds like an interesting story, Suzanne. And let's dig a little deeper into this particular story. How about you tell us what your inspiration was for this story? Well, there are two things. One, I seem to have a lot of people in my life who struggle with ADHD. And friends, and then some family members. And it's interesting how things kind of come around you and you just start noticing, I need to know, learn more. I need to understand more. And I started doing that really more for these people I love in my life. Simultaneously, I'd had an experience in a bishop's home one day in Ohio where he and I were talking in near the fire and this, you know, beautiful wood fire or wood stove. His son, older son, you know, probably in his maybe late 20s, burst in to the room, started just talking to his dad about this idea he had for a new business and blah, 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 blah. Went over, didn't even acknowledge me, didn't realize, you know, didn't read the room, didn't even see that there was something else going on. Talks to his dad, fire hoses his dad. Then he burst out of the room about 15 minutes later. And this wonderful man <laughs> turned to me and he said, about this son's idea for a job or a new business. And he said, it's never going to work. <laughs> and there was just a moment when I just realized I have just witnessed 
an Amish boy with ADHD. I mean, I just, right there. I, and, and I don't mean, I want to start this by saying this is not a dig on ADHD at all. If anything, this book is really about the gifts that come through thinking in a different way. But it was such an intriguing thought to look at a culture as conforming as the Amish, where, you know, really conforming, conformity is, is so much of what they're about. A little baby is within weeks starting to attend a three and a half hour church service and these children are shaped and molded into the behaviors and expectations of the culture and that and it goes on at every level because they're all about the community. They're all about thinking as one in in a large, you know, church or large church members. So anyway, the idea of having a young woman who just couldn't get there, couldn't fit, almost like this this boy I, I observed. And I started just kind of coming up with this idea of how to place her in the story, having her as a bishop's daughter, because, you know, even in the Amish culture, they're in a fishbowl a little bit, those minister's kids and preacher's kids and deacon's kids. And, you know, there's a lot of expectations on a whole family. So that's kind of the background of the story. And as well as a lot of research I did to represent ADHD in a in a positive way, in a sense that it is a real disorder, and yet it has its gifts and it has its challenges as well. And then also to look at how would the Amish handle this, because they wouldn't be so quick to slap a label or to provide even medical intervention. I'm not saying they wouldn't but it wouldn't be the first place they'd go. So that's kind of where I went and how I got started with this this story of Liddy Stoltzfus and her undiagnosed ADHD. Oh, well, is there anything else you can sort of give us a, a clue or a, a look into the story without giving us any spoilers? Well, Liddy cannot hold a job for the life of her, and she is at the point of thinking, I think I need to leave. I just... I think I need to go. She felt like a constant disappointment to her family, to her dad, who she loved so much, who, and especially to this neighbor, Nathan, who is this born farmer. He just, it's in his blood. It is, he is as rooted and stable as Liddy is impulsive and flighty. And yet there's something kind of intriguing going on. And I, um, Nathan has a story of his own where his farm has been divided into two parts and his father wants he and his brother to sort of battle it out for the year to see who can bring in the greatest harvest. And he and his brother have absolutely opposite ideas of how to farm. Nathan's trying to move into an organic farming, which many Amish farmers, not all, but many are doing. In fact, this bishop that I mentioned in Ohio is the first organic dairy farmer in the state of Ohio. So, but looking at Nathan's brother, he's a <clears throat> a guy who uses chemicals. He and that's not uncommon too that they would use fertilizers and pesticides as well. So I've got that conflict going on, and I've got Liddy, and there's this moment that I think sums up the book so well. And Nathan is working on his half of the farm, which is you know usually farms are about 70 acres for the Amish. They're manageable for a a, a man and his horse. They don't over overdo it. And he's, his father had done straight lines of including on slopes, which creates a lot of erosion. And Nathan's trying to figure this out. He's looking at these 
how to plow these, you know, the furrows. And Liddy comes up and she just makes this comment about why do you keep fighting the land? Why don't you work with the contours of the land? And it was like a light bulb went on in his head where all of a sudden the idea of going sort of around and around and around a slope would stop the erosion, would allow more water to kind of set in. And it looked different, but it really worked. So that's a little piece, a hint of the story of where Liddy, for all the disappointment and struggles she feels, she sees things in a different way. Nathan's able to understand that about her like almost no one can. But she just doesn't feel accepting of, of his ability to accept her. She's afraid she's going to disappoint him as well. So anyway, I, it's kind of rambling a little bit, but that's a, a piece of the story that I think highlights what I'm trying to do. Well, I, I love when authors take real life situations and make it not all about white picket fence. You know, they have a perfect life and, you know, nothing, nothing brings them down. But I adore authors who really get into real life issues. And it sounds like what you have done in this particular story. So I'm excited to read it. So tell us, where did you set the story and why did you choose that setting for this book? That is all about my editor. She has wanted me to have all of my stories in this little town of Stony Ridge, Pennsylvania, which is in Lancaster County. It's fictitious. Mm-hmm. Lancaster County obviously isn't. But she has just wanted and encouraged me to create a community where readers will see familiar faces coming on and off screen and get attached to characters and where I can revisit a bit later if a story hasn't completely been buttoned up in a character and that kind of thing. So that's why I've stayed in Stony Ridge. And and it's been fun because there's a lot of characters that are kind of secondary in the books, but they're so much fun. I have this one older man, kind of an ageless old man. Nobody even knows how old he is. And his name is Hank Lapp, and he shouts. He cannot talk in a whisper or a normal voice. (laughs) Everything is a bellow. And he's just one of those men who's in everybody's business and knows what's going on. And he's often wrong, but never in doubt and just kind of a, a fun character. So that's one of the reasons I think Stony Ridge just appeals to people. I do the same thing. I created a fictitious count town of Willow Springs, which is in northwestern Pennsylvania, you know, and I and I grew up there. So I'll say landmarks and, you know, just different places in the area. But the characters, I continue to bring old characters into new stories. And it has I, I get the most response from my readers when I bring a character back. So I know for a fact that our readers love when authors do that. So I'm glad that your editor continues to push you in that direction. So, Suzanne, tell us what you think the key theme or particular message in your new story is. I think the idea that that God has created and designed each one of us in very unique ways, and that is really we have these gifts and abilities, and, and we're meant to kind of celebrate that. Now, I'm not talking about individuality or that idea, because this is an Amish book. But the idea for the notion for Liddy to come to a point of accepting God did not make a mistake as he put her together, that the way she thinks is is a good thing. And the way she it just has the ability to see things other people don't see. She, she doesn't 
she kind of um, can look past the obvious. Now, that doesn't mean she didn't have some challenges. And a lot of this book is about her learning to uh, kind of, instead of having things forced on her from her grandmother about how to better manage her life, she's trying to really come from within. And and almost, I mean, for example, she's so forgetful. So putting things by the back door so she doesn't forget as she goes heads out the door, slowing down, um, having a planner, having just, you know, if something's not in the planner, she does not add it in so she can stay on task, not multitasking, things that just really derailed her really quickly. She was starting to learn how to manage herself, which we all need to do in different ways. I mean, I think of, if anything, I think one of the beautiful things of this book is that we are all prone to ADHD symptoms through the use of technology. I don't mean we're going to get it because ADHD can't be caught. It's not like that. But technology can really give us all symptoms and the distractibility that we're all prone to. I mean, don't you find sometimes when your phone dings, it's like Pavlov's dog and you just have to go check out that text message? It (laughs) is. You're right. It absolutely is. Yeah, so that's, you know, that's some of it is the acceptance of you are the way you are, but also that you have to work with and manage yourself, whether it's high distractibility, low distractibility, you know, all the different things. We are flawed people, and we need to have that humility to really, you know, really uh, manage ourselves well. And we all need to manage ourselves. (laughs) All of us are going into any direction, you know, And, and I think that, the Amish have it so well, or they know to a little more peaceful life, and that means not carrying that phone in your hand or having it on your watch 24-7. So, You know, sometimes I even think about how much more time in their, not only in their day, but even the open space in their brains they have because there's not a television in their homes when the day I was listening to the news, and I happened to have caught morning news, noon news, and the end of the day news, just because I was one of those days I was home all day. And I thought, it is so repetitious, and it is so fear-inducing. I mean, everything about these situations, I really can't do anything about other than to pray. But I've read a statistic recently that the more you are listening to news, the more it heightens your perspective of of incorrectly, your perception of how much danger is out there and, you know, and and also increases the feeling of helplessness. I just think the Amish are so smart when they don't have that. And I'm just talking about news. I'm not even talking about movies and, and, uh, you know, television shows, but just they have really done a good job of keeping things that are questionable values as a whole in as far as time, time thieves and all that kind of thing and anxiety producers out of their life. I think we all need a big lesson, a big lesson in shutting those phones off and leaving them. You know, my, we went to dinner last night and my husband left his phone at home and I said, I asked him something and he went to look it up on his phone. He said, Oh, I didn't bring my phone. Oh, well, I haven't even missed it. How about that? You know, so he was like shocked that yeah. I didn't even miss it, but. Yeah, I I certainly agree. Well, Suzanne, thank you so much for sharing a little bit of Anything But Plain in this part where I'm going to ask you to read either the first page or a pivotal scene in your book is 
one that our listeners absolutely adore. So, Suzanne, the floor is yours. Please read us a little bit of Anything But Plain. Okay, I'm going to read just a, a, a portion, just a page or two of the very first, just because you know how important those first pages are. So, Chapter 1 of Anything But Plain, something was always happening to Liddy. She was never quite sure how such mundane moments, such tiny and insignificant choices, could snowball into circumstances that could go so terribly wrong. Take today. Liddy had been late to work this afternoon, which was unfortunate because today was her first day on the job and Edith Fisher Lapp was not a terribly understanding employer. Edith had hired Liddy to do some sewing and mending for her because, she explained, her eyes weren't what they used to be. As Liddy smoothed out Edith's new dress that needed a shortened hem, her husband Hank burst into the room on a desperate hunt for scissors. Liddy set aside Edith's dress to give Hank the scissors. While she waited for him to return, she picked up another dress that needed its hem let down. She put that one down to find Hank and get the scissors. Long story short, when she was finally returned to her task, she mixed up the two dresses. When Edith tried on one dress, the hemline hung just above her knees. Hank burst out with laughter at the sight, laughing so hard he lost his hat, slapping his hands on his knees, punctuated by big, loud guffaws. My Edie has a mini skirt! Liddy smiled. Hank Lapp's normal talking voice sounded like he was shouting in the bottom of a well. She looked at Edith to find her frowning. Edith was always frowning. Liddy's smile faded. Edith pointed to the other dress. And I suppose that hem will drag the floor. Uh, well, um, you see, um, Liddy's mouth suddenly went dry. It wasn't easy to keep her thoughts together when Edith Fisher Lapp was giving her a beady-eyed look through large smudged glasses. She wondered if this was how a field mouse felt when spotted by a raptor. Her mind was wandering again. She bit her lip, trying to remember what Edith had just said. Do you think this is funny? Looking at Edith's face, Liddy rather thought not. Even Hank tried to settle down, though his shoulders were still shaking with laughter. Never mind. Angry red stains began to trickle up Edith's round cheeks. I only hired you as a favor to Bertie. Everyone says you're an accident waiting to happen. I should have listened. Liddy cringed. Such a small thing. But no doubt the whole town would know about the incident before long. She shuddered to think of how the story would fly and grow with each of Edith's retelling. On the walk home, she pondered how to tell her dad. This was her fastest dismissal yet. She couldn't bear seeing the look of disappointment on his face. Such soul-wrenching sadness. You hit a tender spot. I have a grandson who has ADHD, and he, oh. he's 18, and he's gone through, like, four jobs already. So my heart got a little tender. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It's a real thing, and it's, it's not an excuse, but it's not without its challenges. It, exactly, exactly. My daughter often tells him, Travis, you're just going to have to learn to live with this. This is just the way God made you, and you're going to have to learn to adapt to it. So I, I feel for Liddy. I feel for Liddy. You know, that's exactly it. You just summed it up in, a, in perfectly. 
how to live with it. <laughs> you <laughs> have to, he has to, he has to learn to live with it. It's just what, how God made him. So, well, Suzanne, tell us what you're working on right now and what you'd like to share with your readers on what's coming up. I am working on a story. I'm just about to turn it in before I leave on this library tour. And it is a story about a young Amish woman who is struggling with mental illness. So there, again, I'm working on these harder topics, but I, I sort of appreciate it because I learned so much. My daughter-in-law, my new brand new daughter-in-law, um, is getting her PhD in clinical psychology, and she's been my go-to person for getting some advice about how to do this right and well and make it believable and and how to avoid sounding like a textbook because it's when you get into a topic, even like ADHD, you can really start veering into heavy, you know, vocabulary and things like that. And this has to be a novel. It has to be believable and you have to love the characters. So that's where this is going. It it just got its title. It's called Lost and Found. And I don't even have a um, cover yet, but that is what I am currently working on right now. And when does that come out? That'll be out next, um, next October, I think. I have a contemporary women's fiction coming out in between, which is a series called Cape Cod Creamery. And this is about, in fact, you'll find this kind of interesting. It's a story about a mom and a daughter who started an ice cream shop on Cape Cod, thinking it would be easy because everybody loves ice cream. And the reason I chose ice cream, and I promise I'll be short on this, but my husband went to Penn State's ice cream school. Not (laughs) either. (laughs) Oh, I didn't even know there was such a thing. Yeah, there's a creamery there, and they have an ice cream school that was started in 1892. And, Tracy, all the greats have gone, all of them, you know, starting Baskin and Robbins, Ben and Jerry's, Jenny's Splendid, you name it. Corporations send their people there. It's held in January for obvious reasons, and it's kind of like a almost a, a certificate program. You can do short or long course. And my husband went a couple years ago and is just a phenomenal ice cream maker, really outstanding. In fact, our dinner invitations have skyrocketed because uh, <laughs> we bring ice cream when we come. And um, and it's fun. So my editor has been to my home, and she said, I want a book about ice cream. So that's how this evolved. So the first book is called The Sweet Life. That was out a couple of months ago. Really fun story. And the next book is called The Secret to Happiness, and that'll be out in April. But those are not Nomish. Those are my contemporary women's. Well, that is perfect. I'm I'm happy to have you. Uh, it, uh, let me scratch that. Well, that's perfect. Your readers, I'm sure, read both contemporary and Amish fiction, so they want to know what's coming out as well. So, why did your husband go to this primary school? Well, I I'm the one who actually surprised Steve, my husband, and my oldest daughter, who's a nutrition major, with going to ice cream school because they both had talked about it and they dabbled in it and they made some ice cream. And so for a special Christmas gift, I sent them and I babysat my little grandson so my daughter could go. And they both came back. I mean, and, and it's a pretty rigorous experience. Like it's it's a laboratory more. You're really studying the science of ice cream and the, you know, all the components, everything can go wrong, everything that whether you're what you add in, all that kind of thing. For example, on the East Coast, there's 
custard, frozen custard, especially Wisconsin area, has eggs in it. My husband actually does one without eggs. So there's so many components to making ice cream. And so Steve and my daughter came back just really into this. And they they have they talk on the phone. She lives about three or four hours away with her family. But it's just been sort of a fun little family hobby. And um, my husband's kind of a serious guy. He is was a corporate guy for many years. So this is coming in a retirement time. And... Um, we call his ice cream Steve Serious Ice Cream because, like I said, he's a serious guy and he takes ice cream very serious. That is just wonderful. What what a tidbit into your personal life. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. I love to do a, a little fun speed round where I ask you a series of questions that mean absolutely nothing to your writing career <laughs> or to your books, but it gives our listeners just another little level into what Suzanne's life really is. So are you ready for my crazy question? Yes. And so don't overthink him is what you're saying. Right? Don't overthink him. Just tell me the top thing that comes off your mind. All right. Okay. All right. Number one, would you rather have lunch with the president or your childhood best friend? Oh, I think my childhood best friend because I've lost her and I, I would love to find her. I, I can't yeah. find her anywhere. Oh, I have lost my childhood best friend too and I can't find her either. And it's left a, a little bit of an empty hole in me, I have mm. to admit. All right. Number two, how old were you when you went on your first date and where did you go? I was 15 and a half and too young. I look back now because I really didn't like the boy very much and yet my mom felt that having raised sons you know I have two brothers that <clears throat> she just was so empathetic and felt like oh if a boy can ask you to go out on a date you should go so we went to a um I think a play but I just was too young for it I was just not ready and I'm not sure that was age as much as probably maturity but <laughs> I look back now thinking I wish I had the had been encouraged to just say no. That's a, that would have been fine. So my last question is, what's for supper tonight? Tacos. Ooh, tacos. So that means you love Mexican food? Yeah, I do. <laughs> I do like Mexican food, but it just happened to be one of the, this, all the ingredients I happen to have. <laughs> oh, there you go. Well, thank you so much, Susan, for, for spending time with us. And is there anything you would like to add or a message you want to give to your readers? Well, I think connecting with people is just one of the best parts of writing. And so I, I am available at SuzanneWoodsFisher.com. There's a contact page. And I try to get back to emails um, within 24 hours. You usually am really good about that. But it's so meaningful to hear what people's lives are like. And I appreciate it. And I've met friends I don't think I ever would have met without this having chosen this path. So I encourage people, I, if you, and I'm on Instagram and Facebook, but I, I really appreciate hearing from people. I like even the feedback. So that's an invitation. Thank you for spending time with us. And I look forward to hearing more about your future projects here on the Buggy Talk podcast. And to all of you lis listeners, if you want to pick up a copy of Anything But Plain, look for the link in the show notes of this episode that you can find on my website at tracysamishbooks.com or you can go to buggytalkpodcast.com. And Suzanne has graciously offered a book to do a giveaway. So if you leave a comment on my website under this podcast episode, I will enter your name into a drawing and we will get anything but plain delivered to your front door. So again, 
tracysamishbooks.com or buggytalkpodcast.com. There you will find a complete list of some of your favorite Amish fiction authors and all the great books they add to the Amish landscape, including my latest release, Anna's Amish Fears Revealed, which is book three of the Amish Women of Lawrence County.